empowered by lay-driven leadership, connecting lay ministries and business people to share Christ in the marketplace in support of the mission of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Welcome to the virtual spring chapter meetings for ASI. We have been inspired, been blessed, and encouraged by all the great speakers, testimonies, missions and actions, and beautiful music that we have received so far in this program. And unfortunately, this is our last uh, last meeting. It has gone very, very rapidly, and I know that you've been blessed as much as we have, we have been blessed being here. But before we start, we'd like to ha- start with a word of prayer. Let's bow our heads. Our Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the privilege of knowing you, for the privilege of being able to tell others about you and your soon return. Lord, bless us as we talk about your work and your ministries. But Lord, most of all, we pray that all honor, glory, and praise will go to you and you alone and help us to be inspired to do more to tell others about you and your soon return. Bless us, Lord, for we ask in thy name. Amen. Amen.
My name is Denzel McNeilis. I'm from Dodd Center, Minnesota, and I am a, um, a banker by trade. Me, as business, being a businessman, I thought that my first job was to make money and give it to the church and let the professionals do the work. I didn't realize that there's this whole opportunity of sharing Christ in your own marketplace. And so I just get inspired by my own brothers and sisters that are involved in business that are doing not just giving money, but they're giving, and don't get me wrong, you need to give your, you need to support the church. You need to be giving your money because that's part of, that's part of who you are. But the real focal point is what are you doing besides giving your money? That's where it really comes down to. Where are you sharing Christ? Where are you giving your own personal Bible study? Where are you being involved? Because it, let's face it, the Lord, Lord doesn't need our money because he has it all, right? What he needs is us. And what we need to do is be giving not just of our money, but of our time. We're a family-owned bank, so we're a, commu a community bank, and we mainly focus on small businesses. Our uh, main focus here is to uh, take care of our customers and to uh, be a light in this community for, uh, for Jesus. I believe the Lord is using this business. I believe that we as business people have an opportunity to share Christ where we are. And I believe every person is put in a position to reach people that no one else can reach. On the banking side, people tend to be a little more vulnerable when they're discussing their financials. And so they'll let their guard down a little bit. That can filter into other types of discussions. Obviously, religion would be a component of that because we call these divine appointments, these opportunities that he gives us to share. I feel that if God calls you into a place where you are working with the public, that he does expect you to share him. 
Well, sharing Christ in the marketplace can't just be a meaning. It has to be a lifestyle in what we do as a family. I always make it a point of when a customer asks me, how are you doing? Because that's kind of a standard attribute. I always say, well, I'm doing fantastic, but it's going to get better. And they'll say, well, how does it get better than fantastic? And I say, well, the Lord's coming. And so I know with the Lord coming, it's going to get better than that. Or another person will ask, well, how are you doing? I say, I'm very blessed. I had a customer say to that to me, he goes, that's right, you're a Christian. I really would like to talk to you about your faith. Can we, can we meet and talk about your faith? And so just by answering questions like that in a way that creates opportunity for opening the doors, I think is very, very important for us to open doors to be able to share the gospel. Our friend uh, Dwight Hildebrand says the best. He says, once you share Christ, it's like a disease and there is no cure because you want to do it over and over and over again because it's such a joy. Well, Donna and Denzel, that was just a fabulous <laughs> intro to a Members in Action segment, one of my favorite ones, and we don't even have to move. We're right here doing it live. Mm-hmm. So, Denzel, that, that was just really warmed my heart, but just give me some examples of how you've been very intentional in your business to set up the way to share Christ. Well, Brian, you know, we just built a new corporate office, as you saw in the video, and and what we've done is we've made that an intentional way. We want to use everything in our office to be able to witness to Christ. So our artwork, the literature that we have in our uh, offices all lead to Christ. Plus, uh, another thing that I've learned in all these ideas we actually got from other ASI members coming to ASI conventions. But one thing I did learn is that when you go into a customer's office or someone comes into your office, they want to find some common ground. Mm -hmm. So they always want to look around your office and see what they can see that they can talk about and ask you about. So what I did when I built this new office is designed it so that no matter what you point to, everything on in my office can lead to a conversation about Jesus. Yeah, that's excellent. I know I haven't been to the new office, but in your old office, I remember seeing things from mission trips yes. in Philippines and Thailand and different yeah. places. So each one of these things is designed to spark an interest and generate a question. Yeah. Can you tell us any examples of how um, your clients or people that have come into the bank have actually responded to these things? Well, it's interesting. You know, I'll show them like, a, like here I have money from different countries that I carry in my in my Bible to remind us that money is not really in that important because it's just really a piece of paper. Tell us about the one from Zimbabwe. Well, Zimbabwe one's very interesting because it's a $100 trillion bill. And the worst part about this was in 1978, the, the exchange rate was two Zimbabwe dollars to one U.S. dollar. Mm-hmm. And now I bought this for 20 cents. Gives new money, new meaning to don't put your trust in in money. It does. It It does do that. But it also, it gives an opportunity. I mentioned that I always try to lead with a question like I've been blessed. And one time I was talking to a customer. I said, I've been blessed. And he said, I would like to learn more about your, your, your faith. Can we have lunch? And we have, we've now had about a series of about a half a dozen lunches since that time. And we've been able to talk more and more about our, our faith and uh, got into some very deep uh, theological discussions. And it's been a real blessing. So you can actually engage with a client who comes to you for a loan or for a, business, a banking need and actually wind up giving Bible studies. Yes. Yes, you can. That's incredible. Uh, very powerful. 
the way that you guys are using your ministry. And Donna, you've been cooped up at home with this COVID thing, but how have you been dealing with us? Have you found ways to do ministry during this time? Yes, Brian, I actually have. And God is good. You know, it doesn't matter if you're at home or if you're at business. He has ways that we all can witness. And anyway, a couple of months ago, actually in January, we had built a barn on our property. And my husband and I decided we wanted to use this for him. And so we started a wellness club. <laughs> anyway, we did all our advertising on social media. And it's obviously uh, not a normal barn. <laughs> well, no, no, it doesn't have animals in it, okay? So we specifically designed it for people outreach. to be outreach. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Everything that we do is intentional. Actually, what happened was we were giving Bible studies in our home, and that's another whole story. And we got so many people that were coming that we ran out of space. Mm -hmm. And so we actually, when we decided to build this barn, we built a spot big enough to hold Bible studies because it was we outgrew our home. That's incredible. Yeah, we did. Anyway, back to our wellness clinic. You know, when I prayed about this, I just asked God that he would give us, well, five, five, five guests. Mm. And I thought to myself, oh, if I could get five guests, I would be so excited. And I remember when the people started coming in and there were more than five guests, I was just praising the Lord. I couldn't believe how good he was to us. Anyway, as we gave the, the presentations via uh, people that me, for me, instance, I gave my testimony to mm -hmm. them. I said, I'm telling you the reason why that we are doing this is because New Start worked for me. Uh -huh. And I want you to have the same health that I have. And so we've been doing this up until the COVID came in and then we had to stop. But we plan on resuming again. And, um, you know, with recipes and helping them learn that there are better ways for better health. It, it's just a gift from God. So there's nothing more powerful than taking what you've learned and applied in your own life and then sharing that with your neighbors and your community. And that's what you've done. That's exactly right. Yep. Absolutely. Thank you. And you know, thank you for allowing me to tell you a little bit about this. Well, you know, I was inspired by someone uh, when we were having our winter board meeting at Battle Creek, Michigan, I heard Patty Gunthrie talk about what she was doing at her home and community. And I told my husband, I said, you know what, if Patty's doing that, why can't we be doing this at our home? And so I had the permission from our church board and the support of my family that helped us put this together. And Patty, you have been an inspiration to me. And you know, we are going to be having an interview that does involve Patty, and it also involves her husband, and he is with us via Skype. Thank you for being with us today. All right, we're going to shift to another interview here live on the stage um, here at ASI, and I'm really uh, happy to have uh, Todd and Patty here half and half. So, Todd, you may not be able to tell, but you are seated right next to your wife, who's been here all weekend. We're happy that even though you're in California, you can be here on stage with us. And uh, Todd is a, an orthopedic surgeon up in Northern California, and I know that he and I have both uh, served as presidents of the Adventist Medical Evangelism Network. And I know that he's been really involved with um, sharing Christ in his practice um, through prayer and other means. But what we wanted to ask you uh, Todd, is that how has this slowdown with COVID, we know that California was one of the very first states to, to slow down and then lock down. How has this affected you personally? Your practice has slowed down. 
Um, you can't go to church. You've uh, just been locked down. How has that affected you? Well, I can still go to the I can I can still go to the hospital when people break things, so I still have some work to do. <laughs> but it has, like many people, it's given me more time to reflect and study, uh, to realize where we are in time. I've appreciated a lot of the presentations in the ASI meetings here for that purpose. A lot of good material. Uh, it's also given um, us time to put our finances in the Lord's hands and realize this world is not our home. Uh, we've heard some of that as well. And to engage with ministry. And some of the ministries I'm involved with uh, now, in addition to Amen, uh, Adventist Pioneer Library and uh, LMG White Audio, so both in print and then uh, audio. And these are resources that are important for Adventists. As we proclaim the three angels' messages, we need to understand our history what our pioneers have studied out from 1844 through 1888 and beyond. And so that's why APL exists to help in that. And I've been uh, participating with that since our friend, uh, dear friend, Dr. Fred Bischoff uh, passed away. He started that ministry. Uh, so that's personally what I've been doing, enjoying time with the family. We still can go on walks. And uh, so there's still things to do. Okay. So you've had the opportunity to still treat a few patients and, uh, especially if they've broken a limb or an arm or a leg. Um, professionally, then, how have you noticed with your patients that when you engage with them, are, are things different now than they were just a few months ago? Well, I think as we've heard others talk about, there's interest uh, that's deepening and people realize something is going on in the world that's different. And so I have more time because I have fewer patients. Uh, things have started to pick up now, but uh, I still want to value that time. And, uh, yes, you know, we both were inspired uh, through Amen, I think you first, and then I was listening to you and inspired to start praying with patients. But now uh, it really takes another takes another depth or another level. And um, because we do have more time, we can actually talk, uh, you know, a little more in depth about what's going on, some of the health issues that affect um, immunity, and so we can get into uh, spiritual things as well because people are depressed or they're having family issues. So uh, we've shared some of those things. And I know from doing seminars with you before on prayer that you're up in California where there's a lot of agnostics and new agers, and it's not like where I'm at in the Bible Belt where prayer is almost not only accepted but very welcome. Um, you're finding a, a renewed opening, it sounds like, to try to, to talk about spiritual things. Have you been using any resources to actually give to your patients that can point them um, to, to answers, biblical Yes, answers? I've been giving out that little booklet, The Great Hope. Um, uh, Amen has produced this handout on immunity, a two-page handout. You'll see the first page. Up, I've probably put it up as an image. Uh, there's The Signs of the Times has put out a COVID-19 special edition that talks about immunity, but then also talks about the spiritual implications uh, how you deal with stress, and then where we might be in time, some of the end-time themes. It introduces people to start thinking about that. And then uh, I also refer people, uh, I still do this, I've, I've been doing this even beforehand, but Life and Health Network uh, produces programs uh, such as Diabetes Undone, you may have heard about before. And, of course, diabetes is a risk factor for COVID-19 mm -hmm. infections, as is obesity uh, and there are also treatments that are available, uh, such as hydrotherapy. There's a course on the Life and Health website that's been very popular. It's had tens of thousands of views, uh, people wanting to improve their health, stimulate their immunity. So it's been an exciting time to engage not only with patients, uh, but also with colleagues, even the 
the people in the county who are, you know, when are we going to open? How do we help the community with their immunity? And so I've been much more proactive in forwarding materials to people uh, that you know, we're familiar with, but uh, is new to, new to them. Well, I just want to thank you for what you're doing. I don't know too many orthopedic surgeons who are talking about diabetes and obesity and lifestyle issues like you've been able to do with your practice. So thank you very much. I'm going to turn to Patty here and, and just ask her a question. So you've been also locked up in Northern California and uh, had a little more time on your hands. I'm sure this has affected your ministry to the community that, that you've been engaged with. But how are ways that you've found to still stay engaged during this time? I walk for miles and miles every day, and I watch for my neighbors, and lots of other people are out walking too. Um, it's been really wonderful because the level of conversations we're having has, has deepened, and there have been lots of opportunities in interacting with them. I'm inviting them to my home as soon as uh, we're safe to do so. Uh, there's three things that have happened during COVID for me. One, I felt that God has given us time to study and learn our message mm -hmm. and prepare for what's coming. He's given us a window of time, and it's been a huge blessing. I'm really appreciative for that. A couple of things I'm convicted on. One of the things I've been reading councils on health and Ellen White's counsel about, you know, soon there will be no work done but medical missionary work. Yes. And she also talks about home sanitariums. So I won't share any stories on that, but God is opening my heart to those opportunities, and that's an exciting journey. And the other thing I've been impressed with, as the store shelves are clearing out, that uh, we may need food someday. And so Todd and I, we've gotten back out to try our garden again, and we're trying to defeat the gophers and the squirrels and the bears and the deer, and also keep up, keep up with it. And in addition, there's a nearby high school that has a, a garden that has been run down, and our, our former or our retired pastor is going to start a community garden there, and I'm really excited about that. So, wow. So you've really changed the way you're thinking. You're being intentional about reaching your community even under these tough times, and you guys have had a, a fabulous outreach and even an impact. And so thank you so much for what you're doing and inspiring all of ASI. It is my privilege today to introduce our speaker, Dr. David DeRose. Not only is he a physician, but he is also the president of Compass Health Consulting Incorporated. He's also an author and a pastor. Dr. Rose, thank you for sharing with us today. If as a physician I could only have a single remedial agency, what should I choose? Some might say, well, if there was such a thing, uh, just a super potent antibiotic that would kill every bacterial infection. But others would say, well, I mean, there's all kinds of deadly viruses and other things. What would be even better, if you could just have a single remedial agency, it would be some universal vaccine if such a thing existed. I know even mentioning vaccines for some people say, no, no, no. You need something like surgery. Surgery, that, that is a single remedial agency. Think how many things you could help with surgery. And then still others would point to something in the mental health arena. But actually, there's something that's even more powerful than all those things. If I could have a single remedial agency, I'd like to suggest to you that the best thing I could choose is found in a little book called Councils on Health, page 28. The influence of the Spirit of God is the very best medicine for disease. Heaven is all health, and the more deeply heavenly influences are realized, 
the more sure will be the recovery of the believing invalid. The influence of the Spirit of God, the very best medicine. I really believe that. And I know that may sound like a cop-out because you say, well, you're a physician. How could the influence of the Spirit of God be the very best medicine? We want to try to, to probe that succinct statement. And we want to look at it in terms of something that is gripping really the world today. It may be visiting your own home. It may be present with you right now. It is fear. A lot of fear in our world today. We want to see how fear interfaces with this great remedy, the influence of the Spirit of God. We're wanting to look at fear, healing, and then, believe it or not, the heavenly sanctuary. Fear, healing, and the heavenly sanctuary. Now, when I was jotting down my notes, praying about what should be presented that fits in with the theme of this event, I wrote this down and I said, there's no way that I could do justice to talking about fear, healing, and the heavenly sanctuary. Just for a point of reference, I recently preached a seven or eight part series on fear not. And we'll get to some of the high points from that in just a moment. I preached another series, several messages on the sanctuary and what it tells us about healing. How can I, in a short span of time, do any kind of justice to this topic of fear, healing, and the heavenly sanctuary? Well, I'm not going to focus on being comprehensive, of course, but I want to give us seven life-changing principles that relate to our whole person health. The first one is what I've shared. The Spirit of God, the influence of the Spirit of God is the very best medicine. But my second point is equally important, and it's this. Fear, abject fear, is one of the most destructive elements when it comes to whole person health. God does not want us to be overcome by abject fear, by, by, by being consumed with fear. They say, well, that may sound obvious, but, but let me just talk as a physician just for a moment. If you have fear that is perpetuated, it messes up your neurohormonal mechanisms, your neurohormonal systems in your body. It ramps up stress hormone levels. It raises blood pressure. It raises blood sugar. It increases risk of heart disease. It suppresses your immune system. So the message is abject fear. Fear that is perpetuated is undesirable. This is such a, a powerful spiritual concept. When I was preaching that series on avoiding fear, I was uh, captivated by the King James Version of the Bible because over 60 times it uses a phrase, fear not, fear not. Now, we're not going to look at, uh, at some 60 scriptural references, but I do want to look with you at just a couple. The very first reference in the Bible where it says, fear not, comes to us in Genesis chapter 15. The context is Abraham has heard the call of God. He has left Ur of the Chaldees. He's following God, going to a place of which he knows not. Along the way, Abraham has lied to the Pharaoh of Egypt. He has uh, become entangled in battles, uh, defending his uh, relative lot. And uh, now he could rightly fear the uh, the heathen nations that were in what we would call the promised land. He could fear his own shortcomings. And in Genesis 15, chapter 1 and 2, it says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, 
Fear not, Abram. I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And so right now, I believe one of the things God wants us to focus on is we're talking about this comprehensive view of health and these seven key points. God does not want us to be overcome by fear. He wants us to know that he is our shield. He's my shield. He is my exceeding great reward. I do not need to be afraid. No, I don't need to be afraid of the things that are coming at me in my environment. They may not be enemy nations. It may be an enemy virus. It may be an enemy landlord. I hate to call any person an enemy, but you understand where I'm going with this. It could be that you're out of work. The point is, fear not. That's the message. The very first time it's articulated in the Bible. But then I want to look at the last time this phrase is articulated, and it's in Revelation chapter 1. The context, again, is a, is a context that's become familiar. We've been hearing a lot about quarantine and isolation. Well, John the disciple finds himself isolated from the other believers. He's on the Isle of Patmos. And in Revelation chapter 1, Jesus appears to him. It could seem from a human perspective that God had forgotten him. How did he get into this situation? How is he cut off from all those that he loves? How is he away from all that gave meaning to his life? He's no longer involved in active ministry in the church. But in Revelation 1, Jesus appears to John And as you look at that description in Revelation 1, we see Jesus reveals himself in the midst of the heavenly sanctuary. We're getting there. But it says this, when John saw him, Revelation 1, verse 17 and onward, when John saw the revealed Jesus, it says, he says, I fell at his feet as dead. I fell at his feet as dead. And he, Jesus, laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not. I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. So God speaks to us throughout the Bible. It's an amazing study. I I challenge you to do it. Look at the occurrences of this phrase, fear not. And God is telling us, don't be overcome by fear. Don't be overwhelmed by fear, no matter how scary things are. God is present with us, and he reminds us of that as he speaks to John in the book of Revelation. But our third point, as we look at these principles that can transform our health, the third point is that although abject fear is undesirable and God is trying to free us from it, fear does have an appropriate place. Now, let's talk from the medical end of things. To be unafraid of things that we should fear is actually very dangerous. You say, Dr. DeRose, all these people are worried about this COVID-19. I have no fear at all. Yeah, I'm 70 years of age. I'm obese. I have high blood pressure and diabetes. Everyone's saying, you know, these aren't really good things. Yes, I'm taking prednisone, an immunosuppressive drug, but I'm not worried. And I'm going to go right into my sick family member's room. Yeah, they're coughing. They've been diagnosed with COVID-19. I don't need any personal protective equipment. Now, there's possibly some people viewing this that are saying, what faith? I wish I had faith like that. But more than likely, most of you are thinking this is extremely presumptuous. It is good to have fear where fear is appropriate. Some years ago, we had the privilege of having a wonderful dog. 
German shepherd by the name of Jaser. And uh, Jaser was fearless. Now, some of you are being very inspired. You say, that's what I like, a dog who's fearless. Jaser was not even afraid of cars. This became a problem. One day as I was out running with him, what do you think he did? He ran right in front of a car. I mean, it happened so quickly. A very obedient dog. I tried to call him, but it was too late. He was hit by that car. I mean, fortunately, he wasn't killed. He survived. But uh, fear, appropriate fear, is actually a desirable thing. And in fact, if you think back on it, maybe some of the best decisions you've made in life were partly occasioned because of some healthy fear. Maybe you prefer the word respect. But fear is not all bad. In fact, the Bible speaks about an appropriate place for fear. Job put it this way in Job 28, verse 28. He said, Behold the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. In Proverbs 8, verse 13, the wise man put it this way. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogancy and the evil way. And the froward mouth do I hate. So there's an appropriate realm for fear. To fear those things that are contrary to God's nature. To fear evil. But here's what we've learned in medical research. Fear can be a good motivator in the short term, but in the long term, it's really not all that great as far as helping us live a healthy lifestyle. Many of you, if you have any background in, in the medical world or just have lived very long, you've probably had, whether it was a patient or a relative or maybe it was even yourself, you had a scare. You got afraid because of some medical condition. Classic one is heart disease. Uh, let's say, we'll call him Ralph. Ralph has been having chest pain. He's a smoker. He could care less about how he eats, but he's a hard-driving executive, and he just doesn't have time really to even see the doctor. Yeah, the chest pain has been there for a year or two. It gets worse when he exerts himself, but, I mean, it hasn't hurt him yet. Well, you know how the story plays out. One morning, he's laying in bed. He has this crushing sense of pain on his chest, a cold sweat, and fortunately, he has the presence of mind to roll over in bed, turn to his wife and say, Honey, I think I might be having a heart attack. Well, 911's called. You know the whole routine, right? Goes several months down the road, and it's a totally different guy. He's in cardiac rehab. He's had his uh, angioplasty. He's got his stents, and uh, yet he's still afraid. I mean, could I have another heart attack? And uh, he's quit smoking. He's changed his diet dramatically. But what happens a year later? or two years, or three, or four. I mean, that fear of heart disease, well, you know, I'm not a heart disease patient anymore. That's in the past. And I can have, you know, a cigar for a celebration, and maybe I don't have to be so careful with my diet. And exercising every day, I mean, I'm a busy executive. I mean, uh, I needed it back then, but I don't have a problem. You're following along. What we've seen in the medical research is fear can motivate you in the short term, but it is not a good long-term motivator. By the way, this has been playing out in our society. Uh, as fear levels ramp up, uh, people are willing to put up with a lot. They're willing to, to hunker down. But after a while, I mean, if, if the fear seems, well, maybe a little bit misplaced, maybe I don't need to be that scared, then we change our, our attitude towards certain lifestyle decisions. So fear 
can help you make changes in the short term. But what is more powerful in the long term are things that we value. Maybe we could even say things that we glory in, things that we, 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 we really rejoice in, we, we, we really own with our whole hearts. Years ago, when I was taking a class in health behavior change as part of my training, my master's training in public health, I remember us looking at this dynamic, how uh, disease and, and fear of disease was not all that motivational in the, in the grand scheme of things. But what was really powerful, the research showed, is things that affected the way we looked, things that affected the way we felt, things that affected the way we functioned. Why? Because these things are things that we value. Well, you say, interesting, but what does all this have to do with fear and healing and the heavenly sanctuary? Well, that's where we're headed because our fifth point is the sanctuary actually provides this balance between fear, appropriate fear, and something that we can truly value and glory in. Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to uh, that last book of the Bible again. I'm going to Revelation chapter 14. Revelation 14, for those who've looked at the structure of the book of Revelation, this, this is not just Seventh-day Adventists. These are scholars outside the Seventh-day Adventist church have made the same observation. That the very heart of the book of Revelation, the very focal point, is found in what is called the three angels' messages. In Revelation 14, verse 6, we read that message of the first angel. And let's pay careful attention to it in light of what we've been looking at thus far. I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come, and worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. It's interesting. In the context of the everlasting gospel, the everlasting good news, we hear this cry to fear God. Now, I know as we talk about fearing God and we put it side by side with something in, in a person in whom we glory, give glory to him and worship him, right? We often tend to uh, simply say, well, fear is about respect and reverence. But I'd like to suggest to you, understood from the context in which the book of Revelation is written, which is a sanctuary context, the sanctuary actually provides us an insight into how we balance fear and glory and worshiping God. And it's this. If you look at the very center of the sanctuary, it's the most holy place. And in that most holy place, we have a revelation of God. When we talk about that, most people think, well, that's the Shekinah glory, the, the visible presence of God that was manifested there. But it's more than that. The Ten Commandments themselves reflect the glory and the character of God. Because really, when summarized, right, Jesus himself said it in so many words, you could summarize the first four commandments as love to God, the last six as love to our human brothers and sisters, love to God, love to man. The Ten Commandments are an expression of God's character, love. 
just like John, fell at Jesus' feet as one dead when he saw the glorified Jesus in the sanctuary, so it is every place in the Bible where we as human beings catch a glimpse of heaven, we are overwhelmed by our unworthiness. It happened to Isaiah during his call vision in the temple. Woe is me, I'm undone. It happened to Peter with Jesus in his ministry on this earth when he recognized who he was. He fell at his feet. He said, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. It is natural for us in our sinful flesh when we see a clear view of God to be overcome by fear. But we can glory in God because of the gospel, because of the good news. And the amazing thing about it, the amazing thing about it is that those same Ten Commandments that condemn us in our humanity, that point us to Jesus as a Savior, do more than that. They also show us the happiest way to live. They show us the way God has created the universe. All of God's laws, whether they're contained in the Ten Commandments or his laws of our physical being or for our own good. And that brings us to our sixth point. And our sixth point is simply that the sanctuary is not just about a work that God does for us. He does that. By the way, look at Second Thessalonians chapter 1 sometime. When we see this image of God's judgment put side by side with God saying that he comes to be glorified in his saints. God is invested in saving us from sin, not just from the, the penalty of sin, but saving us from the results of sin. And this sixth point is that God wants us to cooperate with him in this work of sharing the fullness of the gospel, which talks about God's full character, the beauties of God's character. And let me just share with you a very succinct statement. There is so much that that I could share, but uh, it comes to us from uh, a source that has inspired me over the years, and it has to do with something very, very powerful. Let me read a statement for you. It's again from this book, Councils on Health. And it reads this way, Councils on Health 548. I'm going to actually give you Medical Ministry, page 240 first, before we give you that Councils on Health reference. Medical Ministry, page 240. When connected with other lines of gospel effort, medical missionary work is a most effective instrument by which the ground is prepared for the sowing of the seeds of truth and the instrument also by which the harvest is reaped. Now, just stop there. We talk many times about health ministry being the entering wedge, but this statement is saying that health ministry is also the instrument by which the harvest is reaped, medical missionary work. If we're involved with this whole person care, if we're taking on this priestly role that Jesus has in the sanctuary for his people, we will be engaged in a work that includes not only teaching, not only preaching, but also includes ministry to health needs of people. And now let me give you that statement in Councils on Health, page 548. The context there, if you look at it, is actually the three angels' messages. She's speaking to a a physician couple, and she says something interesting. She says, the work will now be more difficult than it would have been a few years ago. But if we take up the work in the name of the Lord, barriers will be broken down and decided victories will be ours. In every way possible, we must seek to bring souls under the convicting and converting power of God. 
I share that with you because I believe more than ever, God wants us as a church and as church members, as conferences, as unions, to take to heart how God wants us to combine healing ministry with ministry to the souls, the the spiritual needs of people around us today. In conclusion, I want to leave you, though, with a seventh message from the sanctuary. And that is when the sanctuary was set up in the midst of the Hebrew encampment, Jesus told his people that he wanted a sanctuary so that he could dwell in the midst of them. The key to healing is to be in the presence of Jesus. And the sanctuary points us to that great truth. The God that was physically present with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden on this planet is again going to be physically present with his people on the earth made new. We can take courage today. We don't need to be overcome by fear, but there is an appropriate place for fear. God is calling us to embrace a lifestyle message ourselves, not motivated largely by fear, but largely motivated by glorifying Jesus in our lives and in our ministries. Check out again, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. I just alluded to it. But, but catch that, where there is something fearful put side by side with God being glorified in his saints. And then realize that God has a special calling for you and me. He wants us to be involved in healing ministry for our communities. It may seem the best days are behind us, but God says they're not. At least uh, we're not done. He wants us to embrace this call to be priests, ministering to people physically, mentally, and spiritually. May God bless you as you catch that vision.
we ask, is God still there? It's when the fire is burning, He is steadfast, He is true. And from the pile of ashes, He'll restore, He will renew. Beauty from ashes, pray and hold on. There'll be beauty from ashes. Though it seems hope is gone, find the courage to stand. God is working His plan. From disaster to glory, He's still writing your story. Beauty from ashes, He heals the wounded soul. There'll be beauty. He is still in control Though there's sorrow in this place It will change with time and grace There'll be beauty from ashes Though there's sorrow in this place It will change with time and grace There'll be beauty from Our next uh, members in action is Lineage. Lineage is a group of SDA young people who are passionate about reaching young people by producing high-quality production. In 1939, Ripley's Believe It or Not wrote about a school in Madison, Tennessee and included its amazing story in their long list of unbelievable things. They reported that it was the only college in America that was self-supporting, meaning it operated without external funds, income or endowments. The remarkable story goes back to 1904 when Percy T. McGann and E.A. Sutherland started a school that was originally called the Nashville Agricultural and Normal Institute. Here in Madison, Tennessee, just 10 miles north of Nashville, one of America's most remarkable and innovative schools started. E.A. Sutherland and Percy McGann resigned their jobs from Emmanuel Missionary College and moved down to work in the South. In 1904, they were here on the Cumberland River with Ellen White on the Morning Star boat when it suddenly broke down. Ellen White and Mr. Palmer went ashore and saw a 412-acre farm that was for sale. It was overgrown, full of stones and run down, but Ellen White commented that she had seen the place in a vision and thought they should purchase it. 
The two teachers, E.A. Sutherland and Percy McGann, were dismayed, for they did not think the place looked promising at all. But they decided to trust the wisdom of Ellen White and moved ahead and purchased the property. It began its first term with 11 students, but quickly grew. And under Ellen White's guidance, the educational philosophy of this school was established. Madison sought to educate the whole person, body, mind, and soul, instilling in students a spirit of self-sacrifice, service, and a love of the simple, frugal life. Using the large property that it had, students worked on the land, ensuring that they could pay their way through, making it a self-supporting institution. If students did not have enough money, they were not turned away, but encouraged to work their way through school. The teachers did not have high-paying salaries, and staff and students would work together every day for five hours. The focus of Madison was to be different. Athletics and sports programs were not included, but instead there was a strong emphasis on mission work. The purpose was to train self-supporting domestic and foreign missionary workers and teachers. The education given at the Madison School is such as will be accounted a treasure of great value by those who take up missionary work in foreign fields. If many more in other schools were receiving a similar training, we as a people would be a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. As Madison expanded, it began to plant satellite schools and institutions all across the country. By 1914, there were 40 schools with 1,000 students. In 1947, these self-supporting entities formed the Association of Seventh-day Adventist Self-Supporting Institutions, or ASI. Once a year, they would meet here at Madison for a self-supporting workers' convention, laying the foundation for the annual ASI convention that continues to this day. In 1979, the name was changed to reflect a more diverse membership to Adventist Layman's Services and Industries, and it is a powerful, mission-driven organization that has been responsible for some great projects over the years. Unfortunately, the school would sadly close in 1964, and the reasons are complex and many. Madison pioneered the self-supporting work, not to be confused with independent ministries. Ellen White spoke strongly in favor of the self-supporting work, saying in the book Welfare Ministry, page 64, there is a large field open before the self-supporting gospel worker. Self-supporting work was and is to work harmoniously with the organized work and the collaboration between these two entities will make the gospel work doubly effective. When I was growing up, if you wanted to study history or do research on a particular topic, there was really only one option that we had, and that was to read a book. And I never really used to like reading that much. So we decided to create a resource that would translate this written information into the language of today. My name's Adam Ramden. And my name is Clive Coutte. 
and we are the co-founders of Lineage Journey. Back in 2016, I was reading The Great Controversy and I was really struggling to find any relevant video resources that I could use to aid me in my study. So I decided to approach Adam about the possibility of making some videos on the Reformation. So we started filming in the end of 2016 and in 2017 we released 48 videos that covered the period of the early church all the way through to the end of the Reformation. Then in 2018 and 19 we released another 52 episodes on church history. These have now been viewed all over the world in over 100 countries covering about 50 different languages and we have over 3 million views online. These videos have been used as a resource in both secular and Christian schools, as well as several church denominations across the globe, using Bible studies, study groups, as well as play to the general congregation. They also make a great online evangelistic tool where people are able to share them. And we've seen them go into countries that we ourselves can't go, countries that are Muslim, countries where the Christian message cannot go. One of the challenges we have though, is that amongst our team of almost 10 people, we are all volunteers on this project, sacrificing our time, our effort and our energy in order to make these resources together. Just to put things into perspective, each lineage episode, as well as the filming, takes an additional two to three days in post-production. That is a lot of time and sacrifice that this team has made in putting 100 episodes together. Thank you for taking the time to watch this video. We really appreciate that. Thank you for your support of the ministry so far. May God bless you and we ask that you continue to keep this ministry and our future plans in prayer. Amen. Wasn't that amazing? Those videos are going all over the world. And what I especially appreciate is that our young people are doing this. It's amazing what young people can do. But he can also use others, too. And, you know, we're going to have a video upcoming that is about Harvard Hills. And then we're going to have a live interview with the president of Harvard Hills Academy. Madison College was established in 1904 under the direction and instruction of Ellen White. God directed them to a piece of property there that they really didn't even want to have because it was rocky and the fences were broken down and the equipment was rusty. Somehow God has this sense of humor. He takes the things that look like they can be used for nothing and he makes something out of them. And I think that's what he wanted to do at Madison because he wanted to show if you can do mission work here, you can do it anywhere. It was not beautiful when they went there, but it was beautiful because of what it produced. Young people who knew how to go out and earn a living with their own hands and share the gospel at the same time. At Madison College, one of the things that was evident from the beginning is that they had to earn their own way. They sold eggs. They milked the cows and made butter. They farmed the land and whatever they had that they had grown, that's what they ate. Because they knew it had to be self-sustaining. If they were gonna teach self-supporting, they had to do self-supporting. It was the template for the program that 
the self-supporting institutions, including Harvard Hills, have adopted. At Harvard Hills Academy, the institution has several major components. We have the educational work, and the educational work, we believe, should include practical hands-on training. Therefore, the industries that we also have. Harvard Hills Academy owns a 49-bed nursing home. That 49-bed nursing home is a fully licensed and accredited facility in the state of Tennessee to provide care for senior citizens who need more care than they can receive at home. And outside of the nursing home, we have Harvard Hills Bread of Life Bakery, where we bake breads and cookies for both the school and the nursing home, and students are involved in that work. And then we have a pretty extensive agriculture program. Uh, we're building greenhouses as we speak and, and growing vegetables year round. And so students are involved in all of these industries that we have on school. These are the ministries that help support the school. We also have a radio station on campus. It's really an outreach to our community, but it's also a training tool to help young people. In addition to the practical training through the industries, we have vocational classes in auto mechanics, and woodworking, and digital photography, and medical missionary, and food service, teaching them these vital skills that they need for everyday life. It's an opportunity for young people to learn how to serve other people, how to be responsible, how to be punctual, how to be dependable, how to be good at their job, and how to be a service to mankind. I grew up in a public sector where it's all academic. I did not have a problem with getting the A, man, book work easy, but when I went to college and I had to apply that to other things, I could not do it. It was hard for me because that practical application was missing. Here at Hobby Hills, we teach the practical application along with the academic, how it can reach one so your mind can reach the highest standard. So our goal is that our students, whether they go in the mission field or whether they continue on to higher education, is that they will be rooted and grounded and close enough to the Lord that they will be able to sustain and survive. And this school is equipping them that whichever direction, based on their passion of what they would like to do, when God calls them, they are fit with the tool. The Spirit of Prophecy talks about an army of young people who have been rightly trained. If we're ever going to have an army of young people rightly trained, we're going to have to have institutions that are training rightly. Not only are we training students stateside to go out and spread this message and uh, carry it along with them, but now we're sending students all over the world. Uh, we have students here from uh, probably 16 different countries. I believe that God has a plan for the work of education around the world. And it is to establish schools like Harvard Hills Academy in every country of the world. I'm here with Steve Dickman, the president of Harvard Hills Academy. And uh, Steve, I saw in the video, that, that impressive video, that you have students from 16 countries. Is that correct? We do have uh, probably a little over half of our student body is international students. International. So it's just amazing. That is amazing. And how are you handling this pandemic in your, uh, in your school? Well, very interesting question, Denzel, because uh, as you know, there's a lot of uh, 
most schools have closed down. Yes. And uh, what we did at the beginning of this is we said, look, there's a lot of these students that we just can't send home to their countries because their countries were closed, first of all. Mm -hmm. And so we put together a plan to shelter in place, as it were, and to kind of isolate our campus. And based on that, we went to the local department of education and the local health department and talked about what we were planning to do kind of got their blessing to operate that way and we redu reduced our class sizes down we made the class sizes you know less than 10 and the students were not in a regular classroom setting they were doing most of their studying in their dormitories so it was a totally different format <clears throat> we weren't even meeting for vesper services and church services we put the students in small groups but it had a very interesting dynamic to it because the students actually began to engage in this process more. Okay. You know, we, we, it was normal. The students would come and sit in chapel. Some would pay attention. Some might not. You know, that's the normal for a teenager, right? Well, when you're in a small group, it's harder mm -hmm. because you're actually part of a small group. And so they actually began to engage more. And we found that uh, this pandemic was actually a blessing to us because the students began to have a, 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 a questions about spiritual things. Wow. They said, yeah. really, is, you know, we want to know more about, you know, we know this world is kind of in disarray here, but we see some things happening. We have some questions about that. Mm -hmm. And so they began to ask questions and they began to study for themselves. So it just, it was a powerful experience for us. God blessed. And, and uh, even though we had a pandemic, we also completed the school year. So Amen. we're praising God. Amen. That. That's, that's such a blessing. Steve, how do you see Harvard Hills in the future? Well, that's a really good question, because as most of you know, we could be headed back to another pandemic. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, this fall, this could come back. Who knows what's going to happen? But uh, in any event, I believe uh, that God has a plan and his plans for education are the very best plans that you can possibly follow. And so our mission, our goal at Harvard Hills Academy is to focus on studying God's plan of education, following that plan to the best of our ability and letting God take care of the future. You know, we have done some things, though, that are interesting. We've paid a lot more attention to what's growing in the garden. Mm -hmm. And we've planted a lot more things on our farm. And we as staff are getting out and working with the students, making sure that those vegetables are well, well cared for, because that may be our food source. Wow. You know, yes. and so we've, we've been able to do that. And it's just been a, it really has been a blessing in the midst of a, a crisis. We've had so many blessings. I've just been so grateful for it. Amen. Stephen, 30 seconds. You have spent 30 years. Why do you do this? Oh, Denzel. You know, I, I will tell you this. First of all, it was a calling that God put in my life. Amen. And he has not released me from it yet. There are days when I might wish for that. But let me tell you, just a few days ago as we ended our school year, we went down on Sabbath afternoon to the to the local creek and we had a baptism. Mm -hmm. And seven of our students took a stand for Christ and they said, yes, he's going to be my, my God too. So, you know, that's the reason for me. Amen. Amen. Thank you. What a blessing for me to have an opportunity to share with you. I'm grateful that God has made this time, that you've made this time, and that as we gather around the Word of God, God will encourage us and speak to us. We're going to ask Him to do that. Pray that His Word comes alive in our hearts during this time. And I sure hope you're doing well. What an oddball time it is for planet Earth right now.
Um, I won't take time to talk about what I see as some of the prophetic implications or at least how I think, I believe with all my heart, God is allowing us to look into the future a little bit. And he's saying to us, you know what I wrote to you about Revelation chapter 13? That's really true. And now you know just how quickly it can be fulfilled. So we're living in exciting times. Let's pray that God gives us an unusual and unusually clear focus right now. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of Jesus, your son. We thank you for this opportunity given us of heaven. And we pray that you would speak and that you would be heard. Help us now, dear Lord, we pray. Speak to our hearts. Guide us by your Holy Spirit. That is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. I grew up in a small town, beautiful town, population right around 5,000. For a small town, there was an unusual geographical feature. Two rivers met in that town. That doesn't happen everywhere. The Waikato River, the longest river in my home country of New Zealand, and the Waipa River. They converged at an area still known today as the Point. I basically grew up on the banks of the Waikato River. My bedroom was 535 feet from the riverbank, 163 meters. Usain Bolt could have run that distance in right around 15 and a half seconds. So it's not far. Now, there were two houses between us and the river, but we just climb over our back fence and then walk down a neighbor's driveway. And there we were. The river was a huge part of my life growing up. I learned to swim in that river. My friends and I played there, climbed the trees, paddled canoes, mainly climbed the trees, swam. We fished for eels. I rode for the rowing club. It was a huge part of my life. But if you asked me right now to list my favorite places in the world, anywhere on the banks of that strip of river that ran through my hometown would be right up near the very top of the list. Of course, rivers loom large in the Bible. We could think of the river of life spoken of in Revelation 22. We'll see that in the earth made new. The Bible speaks of the great river Euphrates. Of course, the river Jordan, where Jesus was baptized. And there's another river. You find it in the book of Ezekiel. Now, much of the book of Ezekiel involves the prophet speaking very strongly with reference to Judah. Ezekiel comes on the scene after Jerusalem had been attacked by Nebuchadnezzar. It's almost the end of the line for Judah. And Ezekiel catalogs Judah's great sins and sinfulness. It's Ezekiel who's given the vision of sun worship taking place inside the temple. God himself speaks of the abominations taking place. Judgments are given against the surrounding nations. Then you'll remember that God appeals to Judah. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you an heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and ye shall keep my judgments and do them. Beautiful. God pleading with his people and promising them restoration. Ezekiel wrote about the valley of dry bones, what God would do in placing his spirit in his people and bringing them back to life. 
And before the end of the book of Ezekiel, there are several chapters going into great detail about the temple. In this, God speaks about true worship, also about the role of the church in earth's last days. And so look at this with me. We'll look at a river, a river found in Ezekiel chapter 47. The chapter starts like this in verse 1. It says, now follow with me. We've got a little reading to do. Afterward, he brought me again unto the door of the house. And behold, waters issued out from under the threshold of the house eastward. For the forefront of the house stood toward the east. And the waters came down from under the right side of the house at the south side of the altar. Now, the waters were initially ankle deep, verse 3. Then they were waist deep. Then they were too deep for Ezekiel to negotiate without swimming. And so let's pick it up now in verse 7. Now, when I had returned, behold, at the bank of the river were very many trees on the one side and on the other. Then said he unto me, these waters issue out toward the east country and go down into the desert and go into the sea, which being brought forth into the sea, the waters shall be healed. And it shall come to pass that everything that liveth, which moveth whithersoever the rivers shall come, shall live. And there shall be a very great multitude of fish, because these waters shall come thither, for they shall be healed, and everything shall live whither the river cometh. And it shall come to pass that the fishers shall stand upon it from En Gedi even unto Enigleum. They shall be a place to spread forth nets. Their fish shall be according to their kinds, as the fish of the great sea, exceeding many. But the miry places thereof and the marshes thereof shall not be healed. They shall be given to salt. And by the river upon the bank thereof, on this side and on that side, shall grow all trees for meat, whose leaf shall not fade, neither shall the fruit thereof be consumed. It shall bring forth new fruit according to his months because their waters they issued out of the sanctuary. And the fruit thereof shall be for meat, and the leaf thereof for medicine. And you're familiar with those words, aren't you? You're familiar with those from the book of Revelation. John co-opted those words. A river flowed out of the temple. It flowed into the sea. The waters of the sea were healed. The waters of the sea were healed. That salt water became fresh water. The creatures in that water would all thrive. The fish therein would be plentiful. The trees growing on the banks of the river would be fruitful, and the fruit would never fail. And so what could this be? What could God be talking about flowing out of the temple, bringing health to everything it contacts, turning salty water into fresh water, bringing life and abundance with it wherever it goes? course, when you start discussing the book of Ezekiel, you can get some really rather interesting interpretations. But over the years, many commentators, maybe even most commentators, have agreed that these waters represent, listen, these waters flowing forth represent the gospel of Christ. So think with me now. God is seeing a time when the gospel flows from out of the temple and brings healing, healing to the land, healing to the world, 
healing to those who will be healed. For we noticed in verse 11 that some places, the miry places, the marshes, would not be healed. We see today that God sees a time when the church will carry the gospel to the world and that that gospel message would be a message of healing and hope. The river represents the gospel being taken to the world by the church. And so, friend of God, we understand together, the church is to be a place of healing, a place of hope. Like a river, it is to bring a healing influence. That's what the gospel does, and the church is, has been raised up to share the gospel. You can see a river even in an arid place, and it leaves behind itself a ribbon of green, green trees covered in healthy foliage, line rivers, even in the driest environments. But of course, that river would then provide irrigating water that can turn the most unlikely places into fertile, productive lands. You have traveled in arid areas and marveled at how arid and how rocky and how desperate an environment is, but just add water, head east out of San Diego, drive towards the Imperial Valley. That's in a desert, you understand. Just add water and the Imperial Valley produces billions of dollars of green stuff plants that grow, crops that grow and are harvested. That's what the church is called to be, because that's what the gospel does. Just like a river, we are to take the gospel everywhere, and we are to bring life. Too often, though, that is not the case. You and I both know that rivers don't always follow the script. I can tell you about a boy who was in my year in high school, went swimming in the Waipa River, didn't come home. They found his body a couple of days later, way on downstream. Another student at my school spent two agonizing days searching for his little sister. She had gone swimming in the Waikato River, and she never came back out. He swam in that river for days, up and down and in and out. Of course, a great big river. Young man who lived over the back of our house dived into the river and broke his neck. It was shallower than he thought. He survived made a tremendous recovery, but was, as you can imagine, impaired as a result of that mishap. In other words, a river, something that brings life and so many blessings, can at times deliver bad news or even do so much harm. And you know why that is or what that depends on. It depends on the focus of the church. Or let me put it this way. It depends on the type of message the church is bearing. Now, the guesswork has been taken out of the equation for you and me because God has given us our marching orders. He has shared with us the privilege that is ours. Jesus said long ago, I will make you fishers of men. Jesus said, I'll give you a job. I'll give you a task. Yours is to go, therefore, and reach or teach all nations Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. We get to Revelation chapter 10. There is a tremendous time of disappointment, but God says you must prophesy again. And if we wondered what the message was that we should take to the world, 
We don't have to wonder a moment longer because God tells us in Revelation chapter 14, starting in verse 6, I know you are as familiar with this as I am, but we are going to read this here. I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, a messenger having the everlasting. And tell me what that is, the everlasting what? Okay, I may jump ahead of myself here, but you are going to stay with me. I know you are. If I were to ask you what the everlasting gospel is, what would you tell me? I know what you would tell me. You would say, I'm a Bible student and I know what the everlasting gospel is. And so I'm going to challenge your thinking right now. What is it? Oh, well, that's easy. Fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. What? Are you telling me to be terrified? No, pastor, I'm not. Fear God. Reverence God. A little bit of holy fear won't, won't set you too far adrift. But really reverence, laying your life down before God. He is an omnipotent magnificent God. He is awesome and awe-inspiring. And so our lives are laid down before him. We give glory to him. We live for his glory. His glory is to be seen in us. It's judgment time. We've discussed that. We understand we are living in the time of the investigative judgment. There is something happening in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary right now. Really? We need to understand that as something in our favor because God said Jesus is in heaven for us. It's good news. We have an advocate, not a prosecuting attorney, not the hanging judge, but Jesus in heaven is our friend and he knows we need help in this judgment time because of what we are. All right. Is that it? No, no, no. Of course it's not. And worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. Uh, Can you tell me what that means? Well, sure. If you were a Bible student, you would recognize that John quoted Moses, uh, who was quoting God who said, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And he went on to say that God made the heavens and the earth and the seas and the fountains of waters. So there in Revelation is a reminder, an injunction. It's simply saying, worship Jesus, the creator, as the creator. Enter into the Sabbath experience down here in the close of time. Is there more on the gospel, the everlasting gospel? Sure there is. Because there's a second angel, Babylon has fallen, has fallen. Come out of false worship. We, we want to worship God. What do they say? In spirit and in truth. Is there more? Yes. A third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast and his image, and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And we wonder, what could that possibly mean? Well, we've studied our Bibles, and so we understand this has to do with worship and not being caught up in false worship, not receiving the mark of the beast, but instead receiving the seal of the living God. And now we ask ourselves the question, what's the everlasting gospel? Well, what could you possibly mean by a question like that? We just went through the everlasting gospel, didn't we? I mean, certainly we did. But did we? Here's where I want to prod your thinking right now. Because it would be unfortunate if even one of us glided into the very last days of Earth's history and missed the point. And the point is this. I saw another angel, messenger, fly in the midst of heaven where everybody can see, having the everlasting, tell me, gospel. What's the gospel? The gospel is the good news. And I want to go through this good news with you. In fact, we'll do it right now. We can go to one of the 
most outstanding uh, recitations of the gospel in the Bible or summaries of the gospel in the Bible in 1 Corinthians 15, the great resurrection chapter. And it begins talking about a spiritual resurrection. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received and wherein you stand. Paul said, by which also you are saved, if you keep in memory that which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Paul said, this is what's going to save you. Here is a gospel message, and this is it. Verse 3, for I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received. Okay, Paul, what was it? How that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures he not only did it but it was prophesied way back then and that he was buried oh yes he was in joseph's new tomb and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures so that was prophesied as well they went down to the they went down to the garden who are you looking for why seek ye the living among the dead he is not here he is risen and that is the gospel story. But it's not over. After that, he was seen of Cephas, then of the 12, and then of the 500, and so many others besides. So now, Paul says, the gospel is this story. Jesus, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God, died on the cross, the holy perfect one, for we unholy imperfect ones. He bore our sins was separated from the Father as a result. He was made to be sin for us so that we might be called the righteousness of God in him. We're going to come back to that. You know we are. Jesus then was laid in that tomb and he could not be held there. They set a watch of Roman soldiers outside. What was that against the power of God himself? Jesus came forth from that tomb, went to heaven. He's coming back soon. The gospel. You know what we cannot afford to do? We cannot afford to uh, confuse the idiosyncrasies, and I'm not downing this, the aspects, the little uh, uh, identification points of the three angels' messages and somehow believe that the mark of the beast issue is the gospel. It's not unless as it helps to explain, to elucidate, to fatten up the message of the gospel as found in the word of God. I wonder sometimes if half as much energy was given to preaching the gospel as is given, I'll be careful here, as is given to harping sometimes about the sins of certain churches we might even be further ahead. No, you didn't hear heresy. I have preached on the subject of Revelation chapter 13 more than 200 times. And if God will give me the days in which to do it, I will preach on that subject 200 more. But if the focus of all your messages, all your preaching, all your publication, all your proclamation isn't Jesus, which Jesus? Jesus Christ crucified dead, buried, and risen again. If Jesus doesn't show up, we would be better off keeping our mouths shut.
And why am I so insistent about this? Because I read some wonderful counsel one day. And uh, you are familiar with it. I wouldn't be surprised if you heard it even very recently. But this was it. This was written by someone for whom I have a great deal of respect. Several have written to me inquiring if the message of justification by faith is the third angel's message. And I have answered, it is the third angel's message in verity. Ladies and gentlemen, if you take everything from and I saw another angel down to and the faith of Jesus and boiled it down, if you distilled it, you know what essence you would take away? Every, what, what oozes out of a compressed three angels' messages is this, justification by faith, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Don't let your preaching be Christless. Don't let your believing be Christless. Don't let your experience be Christless. And I know, I've probably even said it myself, I've sat among those who have said it boldly. Man, don't sit here and talk to us about Jesus because we want to hear about last day events. We want to hear about prophecy. We want to hear the three angels' messages. If you are hearing the three angels' messages and not hearing Jesus, then you need to run because Christ is in the midst of the three angels' messages. What's the good of knowing what happened in 1844 unless you know that Jesus is your advocate with the Father? unless you have faith in him, unless you have been washed in the blood. What is yet another date to you? And that date isn't going to help your neighbor. You're going to spring it on your neighbor. And neighbor, you, got, you don't even know about the investigative judgment. Uh, neighbor, do you know that your day is all wrong? Neighbor, do you know that your pope is all wrong? And your neighbor may, may well look you in the face and say, I don't know about any of that but I know that you're all wrong. You understand what I'm saying? Now, I'm not saying either or, both and, both and, both and. There has never, ever been a more important time in the history of the church than now for standing up and sharing Jesus with the world. This is good news. People fail to understand the wonderful message of righteousness by faith. This is what God has given to us, justification by faith, righteousness by faith. It is the same thing. Jesus was made to be sin for us so that we could be made the righteousness of God in him. I come to Jesus Christ. All I have to offer him is sin. And Jesus says, that's all I want. Let me have your sin. Now, I will give you my righteousness. And in that moment, the sinner receives the righteousness of Christ. That sinner is a saved person. God looks at that sinner and he says, this is my child. Now, I know what happens. Some of those who have developed the spiritual gift of nervousness, they start to say, oh, hold on a minute now. That sinner doesn't know everything. Well, that would be right. That sinner uh, isn't obeying perfectly. Well, that would be right. No. How many children do you know were born running, born tying their shoelaces, born riding a bicycle without training wheels? Huh? How many, how many children do you know were born feeding themselves with a fork? Oh, no, man. 
You're born as a beautiful baby, a perfect baby. At least mine, well, my wife's, ours were perfect babies. And then what? You love them and you feed them and you take care of them and you grow them. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to tell you my fear is this. We're okay way out here and we're okay way out there. But somewhere in the middle, we are missing the idea of growth. We are telling people, you've got to be already six feet, five inches tall and muscle bound before you can call yourself a true Christian, which can not be true. You are a true Christian the moment you take hold of Jesus Christ by faith. Now his life, it starts to flow through you. When I was a kid, had some friends who invited me to a Baptist youth group. And if you're in the group, if you messed up, you got it wrong, you sat on the chair. Now, I shouldn't call it an electric chair uh, because that has unfortunate connotations. But it was a chair that had a big battery underneath the wooden seat and some wires on it. And you had to sit there while they pressed the button and it would zap you right in your rear end. Now, there were one or two guys who could hang on and ride that thing. I don't know why they would do that. When that button was pushed, the electricity flowed. It hit you there, but it went all the way right on through your body. You felt it everywhere. This is what happens when Jesus gets hold of your heart. This is why the three angels' messages are justification by faith. That third angel, it's all about complete dependence on Jesus. That's what it's about. Not merely intellectually, but with your heart, with your life. God is offering you something the likes of which you might never have experienced before. You might never even heard about it before. We come to Jesus. Lord, take my heart. I have nothing to give you, just my sin. He says it's all right because my strength is made perfect. In what? In weakness. He says, take this. It's my righteousness. You'll say, but I'm so unworthy. He said, that's all right. You hang on to me. That electricity is going to flow through you. My blood is going to flow through you. You're going to start to grow. You're going to come back from the, you're back from the dead. You are going to wake up. You are going to develop. You'll get bigger and, and, and this and that, and you'll develop. And that's because Jesus is living his life in you. Let me ask you, friend, how's that working out for you? I'm not asking you what your theology's like. I'm not asking if you've got your fundamentals lined up. I'm not asking if you know from this date to that date. I am asking, do you possess the righteousness of Christ? And does the righteousness of Christ possess you? Jesus is to be our righteousness. A theory about Jesus isn't righteousness. Having read about Jesus isn't righteousness, but possessing Jesus. And you know why this becomes so, 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 so important? Because we read servants of God with their faces lighted up and shining with holy consecration will hasten from place to place to proclaim the message from heaven. Miracles will be wrought. The sick will be healed. Signs and wonders will follow the believers. The message will be carried not so much by argument as by the deep conviction of the Spirit of God. And people will not be able to argue with what they see. And what will they see? I shall read for you. Revelation 18, verse 1. Because as we talk about the three angels' messages, we cannot afford to forget the fourth angel in Revelation 18 and verse 1. And after these things, I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lightened with his glory. 
the earth was lit up with a manifestation of the character of Jesus. And how was the earth lit up? It was lit up as the character of Jesus was seen in God's people. You see, the church is described as, 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 as being like a river. That's the gospel, but the church takes the gospel message. A river that makes rough places plain, salt water clean, fish multiply and strong and they're alive and they're vital. It gladdens everything it contacts you understand. The gospel does that. Our message has got to do that. It's got to reach people's hearts. It's got to share Jesus. It has to present a crucified, risen, sin-pardoning, soon-coming Savior. My friend, if the message is all stuck in here, we are missing. If it's intellectual, we are missing. If we claim to possess the Word of God, but we're still critical and hard and mean and dry, then the message hasn't got through to us. Jesus wants you to possess him in a way that he affects your life. His transcendence is seen in your being. This is the privilege that is ours. The message of the third angel is that of justification by faith. Paul said, I don't want to have my own righteousness, which is of the law. He wrote to the Philippians, he said, I want to have that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Can you imagine God giving that to you and me? Can you imagine that God doing that in your life? You ought to be able to say he's done it. Now, I'm not asking you for false modesty now, this sort of, well, I don't want to say I'm saved. I don't want to say I'm all that. You don't understand it if that's your response. When Jesus comes into your life, you have every right to say, yea, verily, you must say, Jesus lives his life in me. And the critic who says, well, why are you not Enoch yet? Or even when you become that critic, you've listened to the devil, the accuser of the brethren, and you're saying, why am I not Mother Teresa, Enoch? Why am I not living like John the Baptist? You are not going to forget that Jesus said the experience of the gospel is like seed planted in the ground. What comes up? First the blade, then the ear. You cannot yet eat the corn. Actually, it was wheat he was referring to, but that's okay. You can't eat it yet. You can't go and get that green corn. The tassel is still all white, hasn't browned up yet. That's no good for nothing. But then the full corn in the ear. Then the harvest, harvest time. Ah, it's good. It's good. You eat that corn. Friend, here's what we're doing. We're coming to Jesus. We're recognizing the three angels' messages are the everlasting gospel. And we're not forgetting the gospel. The gospel. Jesus came and lived. The perfect son of God came and lived. He bore our sins. He went to the grave, but the grave could not hold him. He ascended to heaven and he is coming back. That Jesus must live in your heart now. Our experience in earth's last days has to be an experience of justification by faith. Remember, justification and pardon, it has been said, are one and the same thing. Cleansing by faith, receiving the righteousness of God by faith. Not some half-hearted thing, not some pale imitation, but something that will cover us and cleanse us and purify us and see us in Revelation 18 verse 1. That's where God sees you. Jesus shining out of you, you being used by God to light up this planet. 
with a manifestation of the character of God. It's good to have the theory, but we must have Jesus as well. I want to pray with you. It's too late in earth's history to miss this. Let's pray. Father in heaven, recent events show us that these prophetic things that we've been talking about and believing about for so long are real. But it is too late now in the history of the earth to have a Christless Christianity, a dry faith, a dysfunctional Christian experience. Bless us, O Lord, that the messages of the three angels, the message we have to bear to the world, will be filled with Jesus so we can say, you know what our message is? It's justification by faith. It is receiving the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, being changed more and more into his image. So one day soon, the world will look and say, I see Jesus. I see Jesus in them. If you will take our hearts, you can make it happen. Father God, let our possession of the gospel be as though a river has flown out of the sanctuary and is taking life to the world. Will you do that, Lord? We ask it of you prayerfully, believing in Jesus' name. Come on and say with me, amen and amen. God bless you.
doesn't that bring back wonderful memories when we were actually at an ASI convention all together with our ASI family? It makes yeah. me long for heaven. Yeah. And you know, we've had a spiritual feast here and we hope that you've been blessed because we've been blessed also. But you know, the three angels message, that's what it's all about. That's why we're doing what we're doing. And you know, if you have a Bible close by, I would invite you to open up your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 14. And we're going to be reading verses 6 through 12, the proclamations of the three angels. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud, not a quiet, loud voice, fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. And another angel followed, saying, Babylon has fallen, has fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Amen. All I can say is amen. You know, Denzel, we're getting ready to wrap up here. It's gone very quickly. Very quickly. Tell me how you are going to use this three angels' messages even more determined to witness for him back at home. Well, you know, Donna, one thing that I've been just so passionate about and what's been so amazing to me during this uh, this three-day time that we've been together is the amount of work of everybody working together. I know those of you that cannot see behind the screen and see the dedicated uh, camera operators, people who help, help with the food or people that have helped in the back back. Uh, uh, room that have done all the editing and the post work and all the work that has gone into this to make this program possible and the dedication of these men and women that want to see Jesus come and what what really has made me passionate is to see that their commitment and that it takes everyone working together to share the gospel and I just want to recommit to be more uh, direct more um, a more loud voice, so to speak, of sharing the gospel. Because in times like these, we need to do everything we can now to tell about 
our soon coming Savior. Yes, that's right. And Brian, how about you? Okay, I've been uh, struck with three things just throughout this weekend and especially today that have blessed me. Um, one observation that I was really struck with, and it came out very well with the interview at Harbor Hills, is, you know, what we have thought isn't really all that neat anymore. It seemed like old-fashioned things, simple remedies, getting back into gardening. And can you imagine an academy where people can actually do work their way through school? Amen. Those things mm-hmm. seem like they were passed 50 years ago, and all of a sudden they're back in vogue. All of a sudden, these things that the spirit of prophecy has been pointing to us make perfect sense. And it's like, this was written not for 100 years ago. It was written as if it was written for our very day right here, right now. Amen. And as the second thing I reflect on is just personally, um, this has been, COVID has given us a time to really just slow down. Um, pause and refocus from our very busy lives, really to put things back into perspective. It's caused me personally to just say, what is in my heart that is limiting me by from being used by the Holy Spirit? I really, as you read this passage, I'm really struck by, by the fact that the first angel's message is with a loud voice. And the third angel's message is with a loud voice. You know, I've been tiptoeing around too long just praying with patients that are interested, doing little things here, little things there. But in this time in earth's history, this is the time to be bold, to boldly go forward and proclaim the three angels' messages. That's what we've been called to to do. A third thing that strikes me is in Revelation 13, just the chapter before the three angels' messages, in verse 4, it talks about that they worship the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worship the beast. And all the messages that we've been studying um, these past uh, three days, we've been hearing that the three angels' messages are about who are you going to worship. And it says here, who is able to make war with him? And I believe the answer to that question, we've been raging war, waging war down through this past 150 years. Who is going to end that war? The answer is in Revelation 14, verse 12, which you just read. We end the war. How do we do it? That answer is in Revelation 12, verse 11. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. We are in strange times, unprecedented times. We have never faced anything like this before. And yet it appears that all of the spirit of prophecy, all of these Bible prophecies are focusing on our age. We have the opportunity to be that final generation. I believe that God has the desire. And in fact, God plans to put on the greatest demonstration of what the power of the gospel that we just heard John Bradshaw talk about. He's going to do that with the human race when it's at its morally physically and spiritually weakest point in our earth's history. And yet the gospel is so powerful that he's going to captivate each of our hearts. Every Seventh-day Adventist is called to proclaim this message to the world, and it's about time. Amen. Amen. So, Steve, thanks for joining us wow. at the booth. It's um, It's been an amazing three days here, honestly, as I have experienced this event together. You know, we uh, we said it's going to be virtual. 
Well, it's been real to me. Mm-hmm. And I hope it's been real to those of you who are at home and watching from home because it's been real to me. I've heard these messages and they have, they have stirred my soul for something more. They've stirred my soul to say, what, you know, what am I doing? What am I going to do? The question we're trying to answer here tonight for ourselves, I hope is the question that you at home are asking yourself as well. As you're thinking about this, as you've pondered these messages we've heard, I was listening to John Bradshaw here and uh, it's not about us. It's not about what we can do. It's about Jesus and it's about his righteousness. And uh, thankfully, he has a big enough robe to cover me up. <laughs> he has a big enough robe to, 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 to put it over me. And, and I look then to the heavenly father just as if Jesus were standing in front of me. So praise God for that. You know, this three angels messages, though, for such a time as this is really, I think, a significant theme. And when I say that, I just want to kind of go through my own experience here at this in this event. Um, we have uh, we read it, right? We, in fact, we read it here tonight. So we've read this message. We have prayed about this message. We've, we, I've heard it in the prayers. Yes. You know, as we have done this, we've prayed about it. We've lectured about it. I've heard lectures about it. I've, I've heard sermonizing about it. And uh, I've listened to those things. I've listened to that instruction that nothing else is to absorb my attention. And what I am thinking is that I'm kind of like Denzel—he's asking this question: What's standing in the way of God really using me like He wants to? So my prayer is, Lord, help me to know what's standing in the way. Amen. Lord, help me to understand what it is in my heart that might be something that would not allow You to fully use me, because the day we're living in calls for, I believe, a hundred percent. Not ninety percent, even not 60%, not even 99%. But God wants 100% of us to to be that demonstration to the world, like Brian was talking about, this generation of people that is sold out to Christ in such a way that the world looks and says, they're living it. They're living it, not on their own power, but through the power of Jesus. And so tonight, my friend, as we're here together, I want to just say a couple of things. One is, I want to say thank you for watching. Thank you for listening throughout the weekend. I want to say thank you that you have joined us and we're praying that each person listening, that their life has somehow been touched, that they're awakened spiritually to a need they may never have known before. If that's you, my friend, I'm going to invite you to do something about it. I'm going to invite you to ask Jesus to help you. And so tonight, as we end this conference together, I think the appropriate thing is for us to fully submit ourselves to our Heavenly Father and to Jesus. When Jesus was ascending from this earth, headed back to heaven after his three and a half years here and working with his disciples, he made a call to them. And that call we find in Matthew chapter 28. And he was getting ready to leave. And it says, and Jesus came in verse 18 and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. We find Isaiah under the call of God and His response in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8 was, Here am I, send me. Amen.
Let's pray. Father in heaven, tonight we are grateful to you. You have sent your Holy Spirit and answered to our plea. And now we pray for each listener tonight. We pray for ourselves that we'll be fully and completely dedicated to your work. That we'll let nothing be more important than this message that needs to go to the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 My friends, we're just hoping and praying for you that you too will be transformed by the power of Jesus Christ and that your life will become a testimony for him.